You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world, here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Hello out there in podcast land. Welcome to Teller from Jerusalem. I'm your host, Hanok Teller. If Theodor Herzl was the father of political Zionism, Eliezer Perlman, who changed his name to Eliezer Ben Yehuda, was the father of modern Hebrew. Thanks to him, the Jewish people revived the language of the Bible. As rough as the conditions were in Palestine, there was a sense, a sense among the Jews, that they had come, and these Jews who had come from Russia and from Poland, that they were finally liberated and privileged to build their own land, and likewise they should be privileged to build their own language. Eliezer ben Yehuda was born in Belarus in 1858, and his fascination with Hebrew started early. In 1875, this young Russian Jew had a vision, and in this vision, he saw an incandescent light passing before his eyes, and he was transported to the Jordan River, where the children of Israel crossed into the Promised Land, and a great voice rang in his ear. The return of the people to the language and to their land And he said that forever after, that voice rang in his ears. And we're all familiar with many outstanding people who remained faithful to to the voices that forever rang in their ears. Eliezer ben Yehuda's mother sent him to yeshiva. His father, a Lubavitcher chassid, died when he was five years old. He went to high school, or more accurately, high school equivalency, and then he decided he wanted to be a doctor so he left the Sorbonne in Paris in order to study science and philosophy. As a student in the Sorbonne, he saw how the French language impacted upon French nationalism. And he figured that if the Jewish people were to build a state, it would also need a language as well. Furthermore, he witnessed, or was contemporaneous to the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-1878, and the struggle of the Balkan nations for liberation, and that planted in Ben Yehuda's head the idea of the revival of the Jewish people on their ancestral land. It was while he was in Paris, he became a Zionist, and this was 20 years before Herzl published the Judenstadt. And it made perfect sense to him that if they're going to go back to Israel, they'd need to have the Hebrew language. Ben Yehuda's plans to be a doctor ended when he contracted tuberculosis. The doctors told him that he was doomed. He will not live to celebrate his next birthday. Pondering one's death always has that ability to sober an individual. I could give you many examples for this, but I'm going to go with one of the most famous. Fame can be a burden, depending on how you make your name. Take Alfred Nobel. We now associate Nobel with international prizes for peace and for science and literature. But during his lifetime, he was dubbed the Angel of Death by the press. So who was this Alfred Nobel? Nobel was a 19th century Swedish chemist whose explosive success, the pun was intended, seems to have led to regrets. He never explicitly said as much, but in retrospect, it appears, based on his actions and some evidence from his records, that the scientist did not want to be remembered for what he made his fortune, namely dynamite. So he created one of the world's most famous prestigious annual international prizes. 
There's an oft-repeated tale that Nobel's creation of the prizes was a result of a mistaken obituary. As the story goes, in 1888, Nobel's brother Ludwig, who had been dubbed the Russian Rockefeller because of his role in establishing the country's oil industry, died. The European press mistook Ludwig for Alfred, and they wrote an obituary which sobered Alfred very much. And some speculate that because he read these, mo- these obituaries, and he decided he's going to convert his fortune from manufacturing arms to establish prizes that would recognize mankind's benefactors. There are some who say this tale is not true. In any event, in 1895, Nobel wrote his third and his last will, and he established five prizes for chemistry, literature, physiology or medicine, physics, and peace. He died the following year, and the prizes were first given out in 1901. Now, we understand. I mean, it makes perfect sense. To award prizes for chemistry and physics was an obvious choice for the inventor and engineer Nobel. The Rational for Peace Prize is less obvious. Is it possible that Nobel wanted to compensate for dynamite and other inventions that could be used for destructive purposes, and also the fact that he never married and didn't have an heir for whom he could leave his fortune? And when he died in 1896, he left a fund for the creation of the eponymous prizes awarded first in 1901, which included a grant for the person who, quote, accomplished the most or the best work for fraternity among nations, for the abolishment of reduction of standing armies, and for the promotion of peace congresses. That wording was extremely, particularly poignant, coming from a man who perfected destruction, In the 1860s, the chemists experimented with controlled explosions for industrial purposes, fiddling with nitroglycerin and black powder, which is an early form of gunpowder, looking for a stable combination. It had mixed results. In 1864, a nitroglycerin factory Nobel had built exploded, killing one of his brothers. Yet the chemist felt that he was on the cusp of an invention that would change the world, so he continued with his work. In 1867, Nobel discovered a safer way of handling nitroglycerin, and he called this dynamite, which comes from the Greek word for power, dynamis, and was soon granted patents for his invention in Europe and in the United States. And business boomed. In 1891, Nobel justified his 90 explosive and argument factories to the Bertha von Suttner, who was a peace activist, and he said, and here's again another quote, The day the two army corps can mutually annihilate each other in a second... All civilized nations will surely recoil with horror and disband their troops. Of course, this sounds like MAD, or MAD, Mutual Assured Destruction, but it was also a gross miscalculation. Wars continued, and nations didn't recoil. Nobel Prize winners would later relate to the scientist's seeming misgivings about his life's work. And here's a quote. Nobel invented an explosive more powerful than anything then known, an exceedingly effective means of destruction. To atone for this accomplishment and to, relive his, and to relieve his conscience, he, invent, he instituted his award for the promotion of peace. Who said that? None other than the 1921 Physics Nobel Prize winner, Albert Einstein, speaking in 1945 after atomic bombs, for which his work contributed to, were detonated over Japan. And I find this very interesting that Einstein is associated exclusively, indeed synony- synonymously, with genius, like the quote, he's no Einstein, 
I'm not aware of the synonym applying to anyone else. Judith Polgar, Paul Allen are clearly mega geniuses, but no one says he's no Polgar. And Einstein is not associated with the atomic bomb, although it could not have been developed without a special theory of relativity. On the other hand, Edward Teller, Jewish but no relation, was known colloquially as the father of the hydrogen bomb, although he did not care for this title, and indeed he considered it poor taste. Factually, Edward Teller created formulations that are still mainstays in physics and chemistry, but no one calls him the father of physics formulations. It always goes back to my original point that fame can be a burden depending on how you make your name. And it also goes back, and even more profoundly to a point we made in one of the earliest episodes of Teller from Jerusalem, that a person, according to the rabbis, has three names. The name that his father and mother call him, the one that his fellows call him, in other words, how people talk about him, and the one that he acquires by the way that he or she acts. And the last one is better than all of the others. And at the time, we gave the example of Oscar Schindler. Schindler was the famous savior during the Holocaust, but Schindler was a very problematic individual. He was a dishonest businessman, a womanizer, a boozer, a creep. But at that critical time during the Holocaust, he saved nearly 1,200 Jewish lives. And forever after, his name became synonymous with heroism, bravery, courage, self-sacrifice, synonymous. Like Vaseline means petroleum jelly, and Q-tips means cotton swabs. In any event, he changed his name. Okay, let's go back to Ben Yehuda. He was sobered by the fact that he knew that his life was almost over. He came to the conclusion with his end in sight that at this stage in his life, or what was left of it, he doesn't belong in Paris, but in Israel. He traveled to Israel and he informed his fiancée, Deborah, that they must stop the relationship, for he has a fatal disease. But she refused. On his way to Israel, his route to Israel was via Vienna. There he met his fiancée, Deborah Jonas, and there they traveled to Israel via Cairo, where they got married, and they arrived in Jaffa in 1881. They felt that they were born afresh when they traveled to Israel. The Ben Yehuda home was the very first home in Israel that spoke exclusively Hebrew. And their son, their firstborn Ben Sion, which means son of Zion, was the first modern-speaking Hebrew child. And they did not permit their children to speak with anyone else but in Hebrew, which meant, basically, they could only speak to family members. In a way, Ben Yehuda, like Herzl, was also revolutionary. Ben Yehuda saw a land deserted of people, and there was no common language. Those in Israel from Poland conversed just with others from Poland. Those from Romania conversed with others in Romanian. Eliezer ben Yehuda created a committee to ensure that the Jews coming to Israel would not speak the language of the diaspora, which was namely Yiddish. Yiddish, of course, is basically German with a Hebrew accent. Hebrew was kept alive from prayer books and from the texts, but it was never spoken. Ben Yehuda wanted the language to be the language of the people, of the shopkeepers, of the police, etc., etc., which brings us back to that song composed by Debbie Friedman and performed by Alan Freestadt and the Neshama Orchestra. Aleph, <laughs> 
Ben Yehuda started his work with a Hebrew newspaper, and there wasn't even a word for a newspaper at that time. It was hard for readers to understand what was written, so he had a glossary printed at the end of the paper, but he said that he would not repeat words, so the readers should cut out the glossaries. To make things easier, he created a dictionary, indeed the definitive dictionary, of modern Hebrew. And he made a committee of people known as the Committee for the Development of the Language to tell him what words were necessary. For example, he had a doctor tell him what medical terms were necessary in Hebrew. During World War I, Jamal Pasha, who was the Turkish commander in Palestine, outlawed Zionism. Ben Yehuda departed for the United States, and he returned back to Israel in 1919. Together with Menachem Usishkin, they prevailed upon Herbert Samuel, who was the British High Commissioner, we'll talk about him on many occasions, the British High Commissioner for Palestine to make Hebrew one of the official languages of Israel, the other two being Arabic and English. Ben Yehuda worked feverishly, and the language was catching on. By 1921, Hebrew was indeed recognized as one of the country's three official languages. After a few years, Eliezer ben Yehuda's wife, Deborah, caught his TB, and she died two years later. Within 90 days, three of his five children died from diphtheria. Before her death, Deborah wrote her younger sister, Chemda, living in Russia, and she said, If you wish to be a princess, come to Israel and marry my Eliezer. Chemda decides to fulfill her sister's request, but Eliezer refused. He didn't want to marry her because he feared that his disease would kill her as well. But she would not take no for an answer. And she married him indeed, and they lived together for 30 years. She bore him six children, three of which, three of which who died. And she also raised the two other children that had come from her sister, Deborah, uh, together with Eliezer. She became Eliezer's helpmate in the Hebrew language. And without him, that project would not have succeeded. Chemda also joined her husband in a very anti-religious perspective, and the two of them railed against the Chalukah system, Chalukah meaning distribution system, whereby Jewish communities abroad sustained their poor Jewish brethren, their beggars, in Israel with a meager stipend. We've already explained this in an earlier episode on Teller from Jerusalem. Most of the Jews living in Israel were not enthusiastic about having a new language foisted upon them. Even many Zionistic leaders were not enthusiastic about using a language in which they could not express themselves well. Yiddish was the preferred language. Herzl and several influential Zionists also felt that German should be the language. When Herzl came to Palestine in 1898, he met with Ben Yehuda for just five minutes, and he walked out of a meeting thinking that Ben Yehuda was a madman. For religious Jews, the revival of Hebrew was no less problematic than Zionism itself. Hebrew was the sacred language of the Bible, of the Mishnah, and of liturgy. Religious Jewry considered it scandalous that the holy tongue would be defiled for Quotodian use. The religious were very antagonistic towards Hebrew and against, also antagonistic against Ben Yehuda. When his first wife Deborah died in 1881, 
Ashkenazic Jewry, Ashkenazic Jews in Israel, meaning those from Europe, as opposed to those Sfaradim from North Africa, would not allow her to be buried in an Ashkenazic cemetery. Religious Jewry considered Ben Yehuda a heretic for profaning the Hebrew tongue. And in fact, Lashon HaKodesh, the Holy Tongue, as Maimonides explains, is called the Holy Tongue because they're not even words in Hebrew, in Lashon HaKodesh, in the Holy Tongue, for base and crass bodily functions, what might be called in colloquial parlance of America, four-letter words don't exist in Hebrew. And if you hear them, they're just anglicized words in Hebrew. Ben Yudu also established that the pronunciation of Hebrew should be with a Sephardic pronunciation. The new dialect was meant to be a conscious rejection of the Eastern European ghetto, which would pronounce Ashkenazic Hebrew. From then on, it would be Shabbat and not Shabbos. Brit, and not bris. Forty years after doctors told him that he would not have a year to live, he continued to fight for his cause. Despite his anti-religious stance and the opposition of the religious to him, he would often consult with Rav Kook, the one rabbi who seemed to be able to bridge all of the worlds. Rav Kook will be the subject of an upcoming episode on Teller from Jerusalem, concerning words that by and large were adapted from biblical usage. And as he was able to cull words from how they were used in the Bible and then implant them into modern Hebrew. Rav Cook knew the Bible very well, indeed. When he traveled to England, it is said that he learned English by studying the Bible in the St. James Version of the, New, of the Bible. In other words, Rav Cook's English was the English of St. James. And the story goes that one winter morning, Rav Cook was learning Rabbi Arieli, this would be the grandfather of the famous Arieli from the Mir. That Rabbi Yitzhak Arieli was the Mashkiach in Merkaz Harav. And Rabbi Arieli was distressed that this unbridled secularist would barge in of Cook. So after answering Ben Yehuda's question about how to use a certain word in Hebrew, Rav Cook turned to him and he said, Has the time arrived for you to return to your faith? And pensive Ben Yehuda said, Ulai, perhaps. That very night, he died on the second day of Chanukah, December 1922. Ben Yehuda had many opponents, but when he died in Jerusalem, his role in revitalizing the language and that of the early Jewish settlement was recognized by all. 30,000 people attended his funeral from the old city to the Mount of Olives, and the old settlement observed three official days of mourning. He gave the people back their language, and there's a popular street in Jerusalem named after him. Had he not made the language, there might have been 80 languages. Israel is populated by Jews from 120 countries in nearly triple-digit languages. Ben Yehuda lived to see his vision realized, the revival of the Hebrew tongue after more than 2,000 years. Cecil Roth, the British historian, summed up Ben Yehuda's contribution to the Hebrew language, quote, before Ben Yehuda, Jews could speak Hebrew. After him, they did. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, 
receive an additional 10% discount off their already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com.